This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. On this episode of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three inspiring individuals. Diamond Dallas Page, the professional wrestling champion turned entrepreneur. Richard Z. Krups, the Ramstein guitarist who recently released a new album under the name Emigrate. And author and entrepreneur Marcy Zaroff. First up are highlights from my chat with Diamond Dallas Page, the founder of DDP Yoga. DDP's new book is Positively Unstoppable, The Art of Owning It, which is part memoir and part self-help book. Dallas also told me about the new million-dollar challenge that DDP Yoga is involved with. It's a physical transformation and a mental transformation. You can sign up till January 31st, but it runs from January 1st or January 15th or whenever you start, and then you have four months to transform your mind and your body. And, you know, you can use our app to track everything. And, uh, you know, cause we've got six pictures, we've got measurements, we've got weight. So it'll all be on positively unstoppable.com because again, it's not just a physical transformation. It's a mental transformation. And, you know, what happened to you, you know, over that period, how did you shift? Whoever our two finalists are, we're going to fly them or bring them into it if they live in the Georgia area. But if they're outside that, we're going to fly them anywhere in Canada or the United States. We're going to fly them into um, Atlanta, put them up at the accountability crib, and then give them the chance to win a million bucks. And speaking of the accountability crib, how did you come up with the idea to make it a place that everyday people can stay at? Airbnb allows that. I, I'm going to see how it does the first year. You know, I own the place. So I figured, fuck it, it's kind of like a lot of people know about it, you know, and people who come in to work out with us, they want to, uh, you know, they want, of course, everybody wants to stay there. And, and the place is like a, uh, you know, it's like a museum almost. It's just got a lot of really cool pictures from, you know, from Jake's career, my career, Scott's, you know, people I've met, uh, Beef time at the accountability crib or time out at uh, slam dance at the film festival. So it's uh, it's a pretty cool place. And plus my mother-in-law, she's like the house mom there. She's like a friendly little elf. Where did the idea come from? You know, just saying, hey, I wouldn't mind people being around all this memorabilia and stuff. Well, I bought another home and I was either going to rent it out or, you know, I figured, fuck, I'm going to turn it into accountability crib and see what the hell happens. You know, people can stay at the, in the Jake the Snake Roberts, they call it in-suite because it's got a bathroom, in it. you know, every room's got its own bathroom. But uh, there's, you can stay in a Razor Ramon suite or the DDP suite, which is really sweet. <laughs> Good pun right there. Uh, so back to the book. How long did you ultimately spend writing it and putting it together? I think I've been putting it together my whole life. Um, actually writing it and putting it all together, about a year, you know, placing it and figuring out what's, 
you know, what lessons I wanted to teach, you know, through whatever anecdotes, you know, because people really, they really don't want to be told, they don't want to be told to stop smoking by a, a doctor who's got a cigarette in his mouth. They don't want to be told to stop drinking by a person who's got, you know, who's an addict, who's getting fucked up all the time. You know, they, they, they want to sort of be around somebody who's already done it and continues to do it. So I walk the talk. You know, many people, as you know, do not, but I do. And I don't really teach anybody to do anything that I don't do myself on a daily basis. Well, when in the creative so, process did the title for the book come about? Did you have it before you started writing it? Before I started writing it. You know, uh, WWE did a, uh, they did a documentary on me when I was going in the Hall of Fame. And they called it Positively Living. And I said, I, I, thought, I thought, you know, my, you know, a friend of mine uh, named Lori Dolphin said it should be called Positively Unstoppable. And I looked at Lori, I go, no, that's the name of our next book. And uh, she, she was my agent on it. And she was like, all right, I'm in. I mean, again, I just don't talk the talk. I walk the talk. And, you know, all that dream goal setting stuff, you know, I mean, like, I just don't set a goal. I imagine it first, I see it happen, and then I make it happen. You know, how do you do that? A lot of people don't get that. Well, they have no training. You know, they, they, they surround themselves around negative people. You know, they, they, they have a job that they hate or a relationship or whatever, and they surround themselves with negative people. You know, and it's tough to get out of that rut. And um, a lot of people don't believe they can. As you know, the beginning of the book says, you know, what would you do if you knew your success was guaranteed? What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? So that's how I live my life. Well, as a motivational speaker, well, do you mind being called a motivational speaker? Yeah, I do, because I think motivation doesn't hit. Inspiration is key. You know, to motivate, come on, you can do this, isn't what I'm doing. I'm teaching everybody that they all got this spark inside of them to inspire themselves. I'm showing them how they can do it for themselves. Motivation, motivational speaker wouldn't work for me. Yet, yet people call me all the time. I'm not offended by it at all, you know, because I do motivate people, but it's not really what I do. When we were on Shark Tank, Mr. Wonderful said to my business partner, Steve Yu, how do you guys, how are you successful in a place that, you know, nobody is except for Beachbody and Guyum and, you know, the couple of heavyweights. How are you successful in the fitness business? He said, we inspire people. He said, yeah, 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 that's great. But how do you make the money? I said, we inspire people. That's what we do. So the book is set up to inspire someone that will be inspired within themselves because each one of us in our personal lives and our professional lives, we're all constantly hit with one adversity after another, most of which we have no control over. But the one thing we do have control over when we take control of it's our mindset. That's not motivation. That's changing the inner voice, the story you tell yourself. That's what that is. That's not motivation. I'm teaching people how to inspire themselves. That's what owning it is. Positively Unstoppable, The Art of Owning It. Like, what is it? It is whatever the hell you want it to be. And it's going to take work. And I talk about it from the introduction on. It's going to take work. 
if you bought this book because you thought it was some magic pill that, you know, you're going to read it and and everything, you're just going to get it. Well, you might be on your way to getting it, but you've got to put the work in. And most people, you know, they don't know how to put the work in. I think this is kind of like a blueprint for that. You read it. What do you think? I would think so. I would think so. So, Mm. you know, seeing how you apply goals and make them actually happen. How was your 2018? Did you get everything done that you'd hoped to get done? God, more. Now, I'm living in a ridiculously beautiful house that I never thought I'd even, you know, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't my dream to fucking live in this house. And I own it. The bank owns nothing. I mean, my businesses, everything. I don't have any debt. You know, I don't put myself in a position that take on debt. At 62, you know, I'm not thinking about 65. I'm thinking about 75, 85, 95, 105. I mean, everything's calculated that I do when it comes to investing in myself. This book, the biggest thing I think this book gives is confidence. If you apply the, what I'm teaching you, it's not going to happen by you just reading it. It goes back to Muhammad Ali's quote of the repetitions of affirmations leads to belief. And once that belief becomes a deep conviction, things begin to happen. Now, when you think about that, no one knows who said that quote, nobody. But when you tell him, you just say what his affirmation was, just about every, every single person in the world over 40 knows who said that. And a lot of people in their twenties knows who said that I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest of all time. That's how I start my book up with a quote from Ali. I am the greatest. I am the greatest of all time. I knew it before I even knew I was. That's the, the, a quote by Ali. That's how it starts the book. Right. And speaking of Ali, he was around WCW on a few occasions. Did you have the chance to meet him ever? I got to meet him numerous times. I actually have a picture of me and him on the cover of WCW magazine. I have a picture of me and Ali locking up. He called it. He said, lock up, Diamond. And I was blown the fuck away. I have a picture of Muhammad Ali doing the diamond cutter sign. Wow. Any chance that's on display at the accountability crib? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. And it's in my house too. And what's really crazy about that is after reading Ali, I wanted, I was a big Kenny Norton fan too. And I wanted to meet Norton and I heard he was leading. It was a huge autograph session we were all at. And I got to spend like 20 minutes with Ali and it, it was crazy you know that Ali I mean he really you felt the love from him you know so ultimately are there any major inspirational people or or icons that you're still hoping to meet that you haven't had the chance to so that's just a love you know I'd love to meet I love love to have a fucking drink with that guy I already met Tony Robbins look I always say Tony Robbins is going to be in business with me he just doesn't know it yet like to meet Joe Namath um, got to meet Burt Reynolds. I pretty much met everybody that you know, I want to meet. I don't get starstruck by anybody. If you look at my wall downstairs at my house and at the accountability crib, 
You're like, fuck. <laughs> these, these people are just like, hey, can we take a picture of a lot of them? A lot of them, we hung out, you know, so it was pretty cool. You know, people say, you know, I just got an email from somebody who said, uh, you know, people say uh, you should never meet your heroes because they'll just support you. And thank you for, you know, being bigger than I thought you were. You know, that's the best compliment somebody can give me that, you know, because I'm always, you know the way I treat everybody, you know, and that's just, I, I don't treat people in the book. I talk about it, you know, like the, the, the golden rules treat people the way they treat themselves or the way they want to be treated or whatever it is. And I don't want to do that. I want you to treat me the way I want to be treated. That's the platinum rule because most people treat themselves like shit. They talk about themselves. They put themselves down. They've got no self-confidence. They put shit food in their body. They put shit fucking inner voice in their mind. Like, don't fucking treat me like that. You know, <laughs> treat me the way I want to be treated, meaning me. Because I know how I treat myself good. And I work myself hard, but I also take care of myself too. Well, then that's not the golden rule, the platinum rule. That's the diamond rule. There I, you go. That's a, I'll change that. I'll use that. Thank you. The diamond rule. Feel free. So I, the last question I got is, what does 2019 look like for you? Wow. You know, it really has the potential to be the biggest year. And that's really a crazy, bold statement considering my life. But, you know, we've got the book coming out. We've got Relentless coming out. It's the story from me blowing out my back to where we are today. Um, it's super powerful. Gods and Secrets, it's not going to be called that, but that's the working title right now. But I don't think it's going to be the Avengers, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think for Netflix, I think it could hit a, a huge cult following of... Uh, of people who are uh, fanboys, and there's fucking monster amount of them, as we all know. So, uh, you know, the, the the story is unique, and it, it literally has a story. Unlike, you know, I just watched the I, I watched 20 minutes of the Avengers, and yeah, I, I couldn't take everybody trying to one up each other on the cool line. Now, I'm going to say a line that's cooler than that. You know, it's like. Isn't there a story to this? Is there a plot? Is there anything? <laughs> so I, I think we've got a really good underlining story because it's dark. So um, I, I'm excited about that. Yeah, I, know. I think it's going to be a great year, no matter what, man. You know, the company's doing great and people will change their lives. We've got the million dollar contest coming out this year, which, which will happen, you know, hit its crescendo. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, the summer, uh, we'll have it, uh, after someone is picked and we'll fly people in, put them up the accountability crib and then give them a chance to win that million bucks live on Facebook. That'd be pretty cool. Next up are highlights from my chat with Richard Krups, the Rammstein guitarist who recently released an album under the name Emigrate. Emigrate's third album, A Million Degrees, came out on November 30th. Richard spoke about the making of A Million Degrees with me, but also opened up about philosophy, his long-term success, and finding success in general out of East Germany. Hi, Darren. How's it going with you? I'm doing great, thank you. Are, are you in New York at the moment? No, actually, I'm Los Angeles. Uh, uh, we're like uh, I'm, I'm finishing up the last mixes of our new Rumshan record. And I'm going to stay here until Friday, and I'm going back home to Berlin, spending some Christmas time 
with my family. That's wonderful. Uh, I read that you used to live in New York. Is that true? Yes, I did. Like I, I lived there for 11 years, and I moved back in 2011. And one of the reasons I moved back was that I became a father again. And I felt like that New York wouldn't be the right place for bringing up my beautiful child. made a decision to move back to Berlin, which was a hard decision for me because I really liked the idea of like having both... Uh, uh, cities like in my life and uh, but uh, it was a sacrifice that I made for my daughter and that's that's why I'm, I'm back in Berlin a million degrees uh, is, the, is the new album and how long did you spend making it wow this is always a tough question because like you know I'm, I'm not a I'm don't write records where I actually say like wow now I want to write a record I'm like I'm like a constant writer, so I'm like working basically. If I'm not on tour, most likely every day in the studio, write on stuff. And there's a deers there, like sometimes ten years ago, and but they're not finished songs. So I always like feel like if I have something uh, uh, potential like ready, then I think, well, maybe it's a good time right now to do a record. So it's really hard to say from the beginning, but the whole production process was finished. In 2015, where I went to again, like I went, like went back to Los Angeles, work with Ben Grosser, that also worked on the on the Silence Along for mixing. And uh, the first time I felt in my life that I that I that I that what that wasn't that I wasn't like 120 percent behind the project anymore. So I felt like there there it was something was rushed. I felt like kind of burned out at the time. I felt like it couldn't give everything that I that this project needed to uh, finish the records. I finished it anyway, and then put it on the side. And then in 2017, I had a water damage where you know all my studio got destroyed, or half of my studio, along with all the hard drives that all the recordings were on there. And the irony of 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 the history is like uh, that. You know, I always preach that the like, emigrated project where. Like, you know, I'm trying to get out of comfort zone, try different things, to be open as possible, you know. And I, I preach that, and it's like this is a project about, about, and all of a sudden life, you know, comes and destroy a record. And so like, well, you know, now you have to start again, buddy. So I kind of like started out of my memory to rewrite the whole record that I have already done before, which is what interesting uh, uh, things to do, because I kind of, what I what I get back... I got back the passion for the uh, for the songs. I got back the the fire that I need to f- do those kind of records, because like with Emigrate, you know, I'm I'm by myself, and if I I'm not hundred percent there, then nobody else is there because uh, uh, there's no one else. <laughs> I really appreciate uh, the, the the offer that life gave me, even though in the beginning I was like not thrilled doing it again, but doing the process, I really felt motivated, and I'm really happy that. You know, I had the opportunity to redo it, and and if I'm listening right now to the record, I feel like, well, it has to be happened. It had to be happened like that. So I'm 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 very proud that, you know, sonically, uh, um, the first time we mixed in our studio, it's gonna be good. Well, you have some special guests on the album. Did you have them right. when you had first recorded the album in 2015? I did. I had Till. I had Margo. I didn't have uh, Tobias and and Ben. That was the last call we did while we were like, you know, uh, things uh, uh, while we were recording. I felt like, especially on one, two, three, four, uh, it was a call from a manager that asked me if I wanted to collaborate with those guys. And I didn't really have it on my book. 
And when uh, when I heard the first try with Ben, I felt like, wow, this guy gives like the song so much uh, more attitude, and I felt like the song was became more alive, and that motivated me or inspired me to actually do a uh, like a live performance video on that song. I always felt like you know, especially because I don't tour on Emigrate, I need a song that like I could play live. And so when I was listening to for the record, this song stuck me out as one that I want to really play live. And then I called them up and asked them if they want to be part of their video. And they agreed immediately. And we actually went to Los Angeles in, in August and recorded like in a, in a big warehouse. And it was the first time I was actually performing in front of an audience. And it was funny because, like, he's such an experienced singer, you know, and I'm not. And I was, like, kind of, like, intimidated in the beginning. It was so much fun to do. Well, you just mentioned something interesting that the band does not tour. Is there any chance that there may be a tour in the future? There's always a chance for everything. At, at the moment, I'm, I'm in a very good balance with two projects. It's kind of a very thin line between Rammstein and Emigrate. But at the moment, it's like the big mothership is calling, and uh, I... Uh, we just sold out the first stadium tour of Rammstein in four hours, so we're going to be probably on tour for the next three years of Rammstein. So even if I would love to go on tour of Emigrate, it's not going to happen. It's just, it's like, you know, they're, you know the, the, the main wife is calling, and then you love your lovers, but you know when the main wife is calling, you have, where do you have to go, you know? <laughs> You've been this very successful musician on an international basis for so long, yet not a lot is known about you personally. Is that on purpose? What, what do you exactly mean by that? Uh, some musicians that are on a level like you, that are playing big arenas and festivals around the world, you know that they collect cars or that their favorite right. TV show is this kind of thing, yet you're still a mystery right. all these years later. Well, you know, I think, like, in general, that is something to do where I come from. You know, like, I grew up in East Germany. I think Germany in general, first of all, like, it's, it's very hard to accept that you're a musician. We're not talking about rock star. That's something I learned, like, in America, that actually rock star means something to people. Like, you know, people in Germany are like, why are you a rock star? It doesn't exist because we don't have the musical history of rock. Uh, I think that in general, like, you know, we Germans don't really have the uh, capacity to promote ourselves in a certain way. We're more, like, introverted in a certain way. I think, again, like, I think it has something to do with, with where we grew up, uh, with the German culture, and for me, uh, personally, if you ask me, I have, I actually do have like those two personalities inside me. The one thing, I have one thing inside of me that loves to create. Like, that's one of the most amazing things for me, like in general in music. I like to be in the studio, I like to write songs, and I like the idea when those things come together. It's like one of those key moments in life I always have. It's just, I'm, I'm going very happy. And then I have another side that always says, like, well, Richard, now it's time to get out, show yourself. There's always this fight between those two personalities inside of me. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, maybe I should promote myself more. That's what you're saying? <laughs> I'm just saying to stay interesting, but you're in an interesting right. uh, position with that. Right. You mentioned uh, the lack of German heritage, in a sense, for rock stars. But, of course, we know the Scorpions and Accept and Halloween and a lot of other bands. But what was the first band that showed you that it was possible to be a career musician from East Germany? Well, there wasn't a German band. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, everyone was into Kraftwerk, you know, and... To be honest, like it was not a band that inspired me to do so. 
I always knew, even like in in East Germany, which was not possible at all. In East Germany, you either played like in small bands, but one of the law was if you would play in small bands, you had to have a job on the side. This was part of the system. That was part of the law. So you couldn't play in a band and uh, do it full time. You had to study music for that. You had to be like accepted by the government to do so. So even like, you know, when I like, I remember like one time I went back, you know, had like a school or union, something, and people told me like, well, even like in school, I would say like, I got to be a rock star one day. There was something inside of me, you know, that certain things, you know, I guess, you know, and you say it out loud without any proof or meaning. It's something that you just know, I guess. And, uh, um, and that kind of drives you in your life, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the thing among other things, of course, but there was no band i was just really into music and i think it's i think it's so important as a band if you when you start a band that you're not being desperate for anything it's like you know if you're meeting a woman you know and if you're desperate you have no fucking chance you know women smell that desperation and it's a little bit like of music as well you know if you do have and you have that desperation for success or whatever I'm not talking about motivation or hunger. I mean desperation, you know? We weren't desperate. I remember like with Rammstein, like one of the first thing when we did our demo, we went into one of the record companies and the guy was looking at us. and was like, what the fuck are you doing? I mean, this doesn't go anywhere. And we went out and we were just laughing. We were so free. We were so naive and we were like so naive, I would say, in a, in a very good way, you know? Any last words for the kids? If you do music, you know, that's the thing what I always like to tell them, like, be brave, be authentic as possible. That's what matters, you know? Don't, don't try to sound like, you know, whatever is on at the moment. Yesterday I went to the uh, Nine Nail shows, one of my favorite bands, like, here in Los Angeles, and... What I like about them is like they're they're brave, you know. He 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 doesn't have to fulfill anything that you know. He just does things what he likes, and I, I like that about bands that they're doing their own thing. And if that, if you do that, you know, success will come or not. You know, I mean, it, it's just a very important thing to be authentic as possible. Finally, our highlights from my conversation with Marcy Zaroff, the author of Echo Renaissance, which was released by Simon and Schuster. Besides writing Eco Renaissance, Marcy is the founder and creator of several successful eco brands, including Metaware and Under the Canopy. She is also on the board of the Organic Trade Association, and she consults for a number of brands. She is an inspiring individual to say the least. When did you decide to write this book? The idea came to me about a decade ago. I was really excited at this idea of creating a movement that connected the dots of all of the different lifestyle sectors. So um, in between getting that original book when I was 15, and I told you I kind of went on a journey of business. So my business journey went from food to beauty to fashion. And each step of the way, I recognize that all of these worlds are interconnected. So 10 years ago, approximately 10 years ago, I started writing the book. I created the concept of eco-renaissance as a movement, kind of inspired by the original renaissance, that, you know, we were coming out of the dark ages, and, and in this case, the modern-day dark ages, inspired by this rebirth of humanity. And the original Renaissance was driven through creativity and collaboration um, and a new found consciousness and 
connection and those same elements, I believe, are what's driving this shift in popular culture today. Creativity, consciousness, connection, community, and collaboration. And those are the pillars of the eco-renaissance. Now, if we go back 35 years ago, that's before grunge, of course, to use that as a, <laughs> as a pop culture, you know, landmark right there. So 35 years ago, I'm sure that people thought you were insane for the, for the most part for caring about this, this whole green idea. When did you notice it started becoming the norm to do this kind of thing? You know, the journey of a thousand miles, right? Begins with one step, as Latsu said. Um, so I would say, you know, when I started, to your point, people thought I was insane. I mean, I was talking about things like organic food and, you know, and yoga and meditation and eco-fashion. And everybody thought I was like their crazy friend or the hippy-dippy girl or the, you know, just you know, okay, Marcy, you know, <laughs> sure, that's, you know, a viable business. And kind of like questioning me, a lot of, cynic, a lot of cynics, in fact, with eco-fashion, um, most people that I shared the concept with were naysayers. So fast forward uh, today, you know, 83% of Americans are eating organic food, right? So we've clearly come a long way there. Um, thousands of brands and retailers across the world are joining the eco-fashion movement now. So I would say that the last maybe decade, things have been shifting with the focus on food. But today, and only in the last maybe couple years, there is that interconnectivity and the, uh, and the awakening around the lifestyle. So people are moving kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, moving from food into the next, you know, shelter, clothing, um, and other basic needs. And so I would say we're really right now at a, at a tipping point where, you know, we're living in a modern-day Star Wars, you know, the dark and the light forces, and... I would say, you know, it's pretty split. I would say, you know, today we've crossed into the mainstream. We're still, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of sparking that light for everybody, but we're on our way. And I wrote the book to be a user-friendly tool guide, really with tons of tips and resources and brands and anecdotes and illuminartists who are my modern-day Michelangelo's. Um, to inspire and meet people where they are, anywhere on that spectrum of change and transformation. So for somebody that right now is totally consuming and doing things kind of the wrong way from the viewpoint of the book, to you, what what's a good first step that a person can take to get in the right direction? The book is meant to be very user-friendly, very inclusive, and very non-judgmental. So, you know, I take the approach that you can't get from point A to point Z overnight. It's one step at a time, as long as you're stepping in the right direction. And if, if that means, you know, you don't have to embrace an entire plant-based diet, but maybe just try on meatless Mondays. Or you don't have to change your whole wardrobe, but maybe the next time you buy, you know, a cotton T-shirt or jeans or a dress, see if you can find one in organic cotton. Or if you, you know, have to go to a... a black tie event or cocktail party, rent what you want to wear at Rent the Runway. You know, when you go to a supermarket, check out the organic food section and start to read labels and then go online. And, you know, the, the Internet has changed the game. When you ask, you know, what, like, where are we today or, or, you know, where is this going? The Internet is 
you know, the single greatest catalyst for this movement because people have access to information now that they never had before. And that's why the millennial generation is absolutely embracing this lifestyle and this way of thinking because they've grown up with the Internet and they can pull the curtain back and unveil the human and environmental impacts of the products and companies they're supporting. And they can ask questions like, what's in my food? You know, what's in my beauty products? Who made my clothes? How is it being made? Where is it being made? They can ask questions and they can get answers. Moving along from the book, you're a very busy entrepreneur. Can you tell me some of the other projects that you're currently working on at the moment? Sure. I am the founder and CEO of a sustainable fashion manufacturing company. Um, we, we look at ourselves like the intel inside of the sustainable fashion movement, so we're fueling the movement. Um, we manufacture for all kinds of brands and retailers, and we started a farm project in India that is built on converting cotton agriculture to organic using regenerative practices. So it's called RESET, which stands for Regenerate the Environment, Society, and Economy Through Textiles. And I also, as a part of that company, we are launching on QVC in June a, an organic uh, brand for home, sheets and towels and robes and pillows, and that brand is called Farm to Home, and that's our home division. Um, so that's kind of my main work that I do, but I also um, have a consulting agency that connects food and beauty and beverages and and lifestyle products like fashion and supplements and cannabis therapeutics. And within that company, that agency, we have an incubator and an accelerator. So there's a number of projects within our agency that I touch in some way or another from a strategic lens, including a plant-based seafood brand called Good Catch that's launching in February and a cannabis beverage um, called Mood 33, um, so, you know, we, we have about seven or eight different um, brands we've helped co-create. That is a lot to say the least. And Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, yeah, I totally get that. But what was your first entrepreneurial effort? So I got business cards um, and uh, started promoting the fact that I loved to do calligraphy when I was very young. And I started um, circulating business cards to everyone I knew. So if they needed calligraphy done for an invitation, a, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or, or an event, um, I would hand calligraphy it. And so I actually started getting clients, and people were, people were blown away by what I was creating. And I loved that service. I love to serve others because um, serving others is serving yourself. And that sort of was probably my first business that I started, but I always was looking at ways that I could take my ideas and bring them to life. It's something I'm kind of wired to do. Um, I'm a doer. And so I think today people would probably consider me a visionary because the things I was talking about 25, 30 years ago, and then 20 years ago and 10 years ago have all come to life, you know, so that crazy girl that said eco-fashion and people thought, you know, I was nuts and would say, you know, can you smoke it after you wear it? And, you know, it was a lot of that sort of, there were a lot of stigmas attached. And the premise of the book is that through the lens of design, we can change the world. And that's give people what they love and seek. And then, oh, by the way, it's also 
plant-based, organic, responsibly made, fair trade, gluten-free, GMO-free, um, regenerative, whatever the story that you layer in, but you start with great product. And that's the one thing I learned from Horst, the founder of Aveda, that always stuck with me, that you, know, you, you always want to appeal to people at a visceral level and then you know, kind of unfold what's behind it. And that is, goes back to the Living in the Light book. You know, all of these ideas you know, always resonated for me that you have to de- drive with design. And so we're in a world right now that's all about redesign, which is what the eco-renaissance is about. And in terms of your productivity, is there a specific goal-oriented system that you follow? Do you, are you a big calendar person? What can you tell me about that? I would say, uh, you know, a few of my personal mantras are don't ever get stuck in the muck. You know, when you hit what might be perceived as a wall, you know, see it as an opportunity to get smarter and stronger. So, you know, big, big uh, kind of area of my life uh, as an entrepreneur that has probably helped make me successful is that I pivot whenever I feel resistance and I'm able to navigate and sort of stay in a flow. Um, And that's just through experience. I've learned that, but I share that with people I'm mentoring in business. Um, Also, one of my favorite quotes is, work is love made visible, which is from Khalil Gibran's book, The Prophet. And so I also, you know, advocate for do what you love and you will be more productive that way. So when when I interview people for my different companies, I always say, if you could write your own job description and that would make you so excited, what would it be? And I like to start there. And I obviously skill sets and experience always plays a role. But if somebody um, has passion, I think that is a huge driver uh, in business. And um, so in terms of my own kind of makeup around um, how I approach business, you know, it is um, from that lens of like, you know, keep going, don't get stuck in the muck, follow your heart, be true to yourself, and always think out of the box. Never say, I can't, say, how can I? Because where there's a will, there's a way, right? And, and if you can envision something, you can likely create it. It's just figuring out the path to get there. Usually my staple question to end interviews is any last words for the kids, but I think you just knocked it out of the park with that last one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're doing with interviews. That's the bottom line. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, one of the um, things that inspires me in my career, you know, is the fact that I do have two kids and I am a mom. And, you know, in the words of Native American wisdom, we don't inherit this land from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And so, you know, we need to co-create now a better world for our children, one that is built on, you know, sustainable principles where we can leave this world as good, if not better than the way we found it and um, ensure the survival of our children's children and so on. Um, So I think, you know, the book at a very deep level and at the core level is, you know, come on, people, like all hands on deck. We're living in really serious times right now where we've, you know, as Albert Einstein said, we can't solve today's problems with the same consciousness that created those problems. And if we look around and we see how we've, you know, depleted our ecosystems, our oceans ecosystems, our soil, our rainforest, the things that we depend on, we're not outside of nature, we're part of nature. And we need to remember who we really are, that we breathe 
breathe out carbon dioxide and nature breathes it in and breathes out oxygen, which we breathe in. We have a symbiotic relationship with our environment and we have to remember that to really be, you know, grounded and in alignment with who we really are. We all have to coexist, humans, animals, and all living species. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.